Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast. Now, what is this a podcast of? Is it about passing your board exams? No, no, that's a different podcast. This is a podcast about wellness and happiness and great stories. I think part of that is about raising awareness, raising awareness about different diseases, different treatments. And you know what? I looked at the calendar and it's May. And I want to be on time to talk about a very important thing, which is skin cancer awareness. And I was thinking, well, this will be the perfect time to get a dermatologist to come here and be on the show. And immediately, it's almost as if it's some kind of reflex. I thought of one person. This is a person, of course, my friend and colleague on this TV show you may have heard about called the doctors but make no mistake she is the star of the show you know um <laughs> thank you for that Rob. that you know we have now she's giggling at me a little bit we have dr sonia batra and you know the routine here on the dr Raj podcast i gotta read the bio and this one's pretty impressive you know so dr batra is a double board certified in both dermatology and dermatologic surgery and is the founder of a dermatology practice in Santa Monica, California. Dr. Batra received her undergraduate and medical training at Harvard University, so proud of you, was a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford and completed her training in dermatology at Stanford. Did you just go to every Ivy League? (laughs) I was so lucky, I was so fortunate. (laughs) Since 2016, she has also been a co-host and skincare expert on CBS syndicated daytime talk show, The Doctors, which is broadcast in over 100 countries worldwide. I didn't even know that. Sonia, thank you for being here today. You're so awesome. No, fun fact, you're awesome. It's been such a pleasure working with you on the show. And thank you so much for thinking of me for your podcast. I'm thrilled and grateful to be here. 
All right. So we're going to do a little meet and greet questions. Then from there, you know, I, I told my Dr. Raj fans that you're coming on. So I got some questions about skin cancer. So I can't wait to ask you this one. So one thing me and you have in common, we're Indian. It's no secret. You know, I am Raj and I look brown, you know. So um, the question becomes, why did you want to become a doctor? Now, was it part of the rules of your household? Because I've been to these Indian parties, and if you're not a doctor, people aren't happy. So did you always want to be a doctor growing up, Sonia? So you're right. You're right. There is that 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 aspect, especially for us, because we're a little older than right the younger generation of Indians now who seem mm. to have a little bit broader landscape and, and more opportunities on the horizon. And it did seem when I was a kid that you were either going to be a doctor or an engineer and then if you're really humanities oriented and really out there on the fringe, you can be a lawyer, right? That first generation Indian. And uh, I think you also, what if your parents is a physician too, right, Rod? A nurse. She is oh, nurse. the best nurse in the whole world. My mom. Love you, mom. Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's that healthcare exposure. Uh, both yep. were doctors or are doctors now retired, I should say. And uh, so my older brother, who is also a physician, and I were exposed to medicine all the time growing up. It was what we talked over the dinner table about. It was kind of this expectation that if it was a fit for us, that certainly that would be an appropriate and reasonable choice. So growing up, I definitely thought very strongly about being a doctor and uh, was fortunate that I actually loved science. I loved the aspect of helping people. So it was good fit. Well, you know, I do have a lot of like listeners are med students are making decisions to be pre-med. So, you know, you got to have a weakness somewhere. So let's talk about med school. Okay. So jump back in the time machine. What was your kind of favorite part or favorite subject in med school? And be honest, what was a, a tougher one too? So tell me both. Sure. Well, I think, I think it's always good to start with the tougher and the weaknesses, right? Because we all have them. And certainly in med school, it's, it's a tough time because it's so much work and it's all new. And it's hard to maintain that compass and know that it was the right choice. And for me, the toughest was actually the very first course out of the gate. It was, it was gross anatomy, which is, <laughs> is a big transition. You know, if, even in someone who's grown up exposed to, to nursing medicine and been around doctors, I think when you start that first course and you're supposed to cadavers and you're expected to dissect and it's just such a different body of knowledge and and it really demarcates between someone who's had that privilege of being a doctor and having that intimate view of the human body. Um, for me, that was really tough. It was just psychologically sort of tough to grapple with the idea of dissections. Now I love anatomy. Now I'm like a complete nerd. When I do my <laughs> skin cancer procedures, I, I quiz anyone around me. Do you know that nerve? Do you know that muscle? And so, so like it comes full circle, right? But, but I do remember that transition being daunting. I remember being such a different body of knowledge than the stuff I had had to memorize as a pre-med. And it was hard, right? The anatomy of innervations and what supplies what and how does this all fit together physiologically. And and so I found that to be a really, really challenging course, someone that took a lot of extra effort, both emotionally and just psychologically and mentally to grapple with. Um, my favorite, favorite part of medical school was certainly getting onto the clinical rotations. I was 100% yeah, who loved being in the hospital and talking to patients a little more than I liked just thinking and reading about it. <laughs> and, and I think I'm a more of an experiential learner. So for me, the things I learned on the ward stuck a little more. So that was by far my favorite part. So here's another question I can't wait to ask you. So you mentioned your, your folks, your mom and dad are, are doctors, you know. And if my memory serves me correct, 
your dad's got some good taste in, in being a doctor. He's a pulmonary critical care doctor like me. So I have that bond. So how did you go from having this awesome, cool dad that loves <laughs> lungs and critical care to you're going to be a dermatologist? Well, how did that happen? How did you get that motivation? Yeah, it's it's totally different. But, you know, you're right. Like you, amazing specialty. You guys make such a huge impact on people's lives. And so I think the one commonality between pulmonary medicine and dermatology is you really get to experience that continuum and that continuity of care with your patients with chronic diseases. And I'm sure you have this experience because you're a phenomenal doctor of being out and about in the community and someone who you're managing perhaps their asthma or their COPD or their emphysema, they might run into you with their family or your family and, and you experience that connection and that gratitude and that real gratification that comes from being a physician managing someone who appreciates the work you're doing. So for me growing up with my dad, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I practice in a building where I can see the practice he had like that building, Aww. you know, like literally is a stone's throw from my office. Now, <laughs> so I didn't get very far, but, um, but I remember being at a restaurant or at the dry cleaners and someone coming up to my dad and really having that um, appreciation. It was palpable. And, and you could see how gratifying it was for him. Yeah. So so for me, I think one aspect of dermatology that resonated is the continuity of relationships with people and the fact that you can really see them through on a condition and you can manage them successfully. And so that that aspect of the patient relationship was was very familiar to me from you know summers in my dad's office and hearing yeah. him talking to him about his experience and I and I hope you experience the same thing. Oh, um, I think for for dermatology it was completely fortuitous. Um, I interestingly how you know life sometimes it's unexpected. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a lot of dermatology exposure because it's probably the one specialty in my family that this family of doctors, no one does. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I, I, to be completely honest, like you were pointing out as a first generation Indian, mm-hmm. uh, Indian doctors don't necessarily, especially when I went through med school, you know, 25 years ago, mm-hmm. it wasn't like the most highly thought of specialty, right? Like it was cardiology or bust. Correct. Oh and, and, and so, so it was very interesting because the origin or the, not the origin, I shouldn't yeah. say, the association with dermatology, especially years ago, well before it was skin cancer oriented and, and cosmetically oriented, was managing things like STDs and syphilis and so, or, you know, weird rashes and which was all really cool. We'd still get to do, which actually makes it really intellectually challenging and fun. Of course. But, um, but interestingly for me, what I loved about dermatology when I rotated through it was the mix of procedures and medicine. And I was very much someone who likes working with my hands. I like doing surgeries. I like fixing things um, more experientially. And, and so that really fit for me. But to answer your question, I never thought I'd be a dermatologist. I got a really bad lottery number. The way my medical school works is you got a lottery number that determines your orders of rotations. Wow. And so I got, I think, the second to the last lottery number in my entire (laughs) class, which meant that I had no say almost in where I did my course. And the core rotations were required for specialty rotations with three exceptions, which were radiology, pathology, and dermatology which were considered to be like their own little entities. And yeah. more, but I remember those three very vividly because I didn't get any course. They were my last three quarters of the year. So you couldn't take cardiology at my med school unless you had done internal medicine. Okay. And, and I didn't get internal medicine. I, t- I think till like my third or fourth 
like quarter of yeah. the year. So like those kinds of electives weren't even things I could sign up for. So I signed up for the things on my first quarter, which didn't require any prereqs because uh-huh, I had no okay. <laughs> Durham was my second rotation. I loved it. I loved the mix of medicine. Uh-huh. I loved the surgery. I loved the personality types and the people. And I just fell into it. And I remember this disappointment and shock when I told my parents how much I love dermatology, because it wasn't the mindset, it wasn't, you know, the cardiology field, but it's, it's funny because when you're a med student, you make decisions based on pretty limited information in retrospect, right? Like you do a year yeah. lucky of rotations, you pick something, you hope it's a good fit. And uh, I went back, I did a sub I after doing all my cores because I kept thinking that, well, I like this and I like that, but I still really thought Durham was great. And so then when I went back and did the sub I, it cemented that decision for me. And, uh, and, you know, now I've been board certified and practicing for 18 years. It was the best. (laughs) I know. (laughs) And it was a great, like it ended up being like the best, wonderful fit, great choice. And I'm, I'm really grateful. I mean, I lucked into it kind of thing and, and I couldn't be happier. No, and I think your patients are super happy you picked it too. But I'm going to like switch gears a little bit because I'm curious about this also because, you know, when we first became buddies, I saw you in the dressing room and I'm like, hey, I'm Raj. I'm guesting on the show today. The doctors, who are you? And we became kind of friends and you always wore a smiling face and everyone on the show is awesome. But how did you end up on the doctors? Because you've been there quite a bit. You're a host of the show for a while. I mean, how, how did you just... Did it fall in your lap also, like dermatology or what happened? <laughs> well, I mean, I'm going to, I think I must be just an incredibly fortunate person because yeah, it, it did. And and it was so lovely meeting you on the show. I think the, the, one of the highlights of the show was really meeting experts, like true brilliant experts in their fields like you and having the opportunity to, to talk about medicine, right? It's fun. It's yeah. We would talk about everything from medical headlines to research studies to put it to the test, debunking myths. It was it was a great experience. <laughs> and I fell into it by chance. The first time I went on the show was because one of my uh, med school professors recommended that I explain a device he had created for psoriasis. Oh, okay. <laughs> so he was, um, um, his name was Ethan Lerner, and he's a professor at Mass General. And he created a really excellent narrowband UVB uh, light source. Uh, that treats uh, one of the inflammatory autoimmune type conditions for the skin called psoriasis. And so um, UVB disperses some of the inflammation can be quite successful. And this was a, a kind of a device he'd created for harder to treat site, which was the scalp. And he was based in Massachusetts and, you know, the doctors was still pretty early and he yeah. the local dermatologist uh, who was practicing in LA to be able to describe what psoriasis was and how the device worked. Mm-hmm. And so he reached out and I had been practicing for several years, not that long at that point and said, Hey, would you mind going on this show? And, and I'll come out, but I, you know, I want someone who can explain on a TV type of setting, how it works. And um, that was the first time I'd ever been on TV. So that was kind of an interesting experience. That was um, my first experience. And it went well and they gave me nice feedback from the show. And then like, literally I didn't hear from them for years and and I kind of thought, oh, that was a fun experience. Yep. But, you know, I was in practice and life went on. And then uh, literally, I think it was several years later, out of the blue, and not going with the show had a nice longevity, right? It's in season 14. No kidding. So a few years later, they um, they happened to have another medical germ segment. And someone somehow who was a producer on the show had watched the segment I did years before. <laughs> 
and cold called me and said, Hey, could you come back and talk about this other, you know, random medical derm segment? And, and so I was really flattered and I went back and that segment then sort of snowballed. Then they started ah. a lot more regularly. And when they had an opportunity to co-host, um, I was so grateful and so uh, flattered that they asked me to come on board as a co-host and, you know, obviously the show has been through multiple iterations over years. Now it's on Zoom. segments, I still log in. But now that it's it's based largely in Connecticut, obviously with the pandemic, there were a yeah. lot of changes. It's, it's been harder to, to be as regularly involved. But I'm always grateful and always excited to be a part of it. No. And, and you bring some great table balance, you know what I mean, with all the different personalities. I think they, they chose wisely, honestly. Oh, that's so fun. No, it's I mean it. such a blast. It, it, and you brought so much energy and expertise. It was so much fun working with you on the show. Aww. Now, before we go into skin cancer, but I, I could talk to you forever. I mean, if you had to pick one out of the hundreds of episodes that you did, is, is there a real one that just, you know, we're going to talk about this hockey one. So save yeah, that. that we're was a, save yeah, that, that one. That, that well, was a really sweet But do you have a, a favorite one that besides that one that really jumps to mind, you know? Um, I mean, I think that, there was one very memorable investigation. So some of the really fun shows involved mm. actually were the producers going in the weeds. Her name is Leslie Marcus, and she does these original investigations mm-hmm. where she'll read about something and say, well, that can't possibly be the case. And so this one was one of her many outstanding investigations, and it was a DIY beauty show. And she went on YouTube and these Facebook books, which she basically infiltrated because a number of them were members only. And uh, it was a topic near and dear to my heart, which was people learning online from non-experts how to do medical and beauty treatments on themselves, like Botox and fillers and lasers. Wow. Then buying black market goods from yeah. who knows where, yeah. and yeah. contaminated, and then following these tutorials of people who were not physicians um, and not nurses or trained in any way who had sort of taught themselves how to do procedures, which you know, run huge risks of complications, everything from injecting filler into a blood vessel and causing blindness to necrosis of the skin, you know, like really dangerous. Yeah, really bad stuff. And so we we did this investigation and she was actually able to to bring to the show a very unapologetic, you know, person who was creating these, these videos who had no medical background whatsoever, but was trying to teach other people how to do it. And, and it was a really eye-opening experience where we tried to gently educate her and and Andrew Orton, who's of course the host and a plastic surgeon on the show Mm -hmm. was also very, very uh, uh, vocal about this, trying to (laughs) explain to her that, you know, these are dangerous procedures and to risk yourself, but in the world of the internet, propagating dangerous practices and misinformation is, is also a huge public health risk. No kidding. So, so it was a, it was a fascinating experience. And, you know, even if we didn't necessarily convince her and it was a really interesting experience, having someone right in front of you, and you're trying to mm-hmm. be rational with them and they're not, they're not having it. We hope that at least it educated a lot of viewers around the world about the hazards of watching something online and yeah. assuming that it's safe and reasonable to do or even buying products online and assuming oh they're not contaminated or laden with bacteria are going to cause an infection. So so that was a really, really yeah. interesting and memorable show. But there, there were a ton. There, there oh, were yeah, I'm sure. Too, and <laughs> spicy chip challenges and all sorts of really interesting things we did in the name of, of medicine and science. But 
but it was it was a real learning experience. And and you know, I think at the end of the day, what what was really gratifying about working on the show was how many people we touched. And and even now, someone you know often will just randomly send my my office email just a, a note that they watched a segment online and that they learned about this and spotted something. Um, and obviously we're here to talk about skin cancer and yeah. all skin cancer shows were great awareness raisers. And those are probably the ones that I get the most emails and still comments. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. So, so really, really helpful. So this is a good transition. You're talking about educating. You love doing it. So I got some skin cancer questions. So this is going to be for the general public, but I got to tell you, sometimes a med student or two will download the Dr. Raj podcast also. So, um, you know, in my little research preparing for this, you know, I think we're going to talk about the big three skin cancers, you know, and I would love you just to list them what they are and kind of say which one is the most common, which is the scariest, and then we'll dive into each one a little bit. So the floor is yours. <laughs> sure. And, yeah. and I have to say, thank you for doing this during Skin Cancer Awareness Month. It's so topical and such a mm -hmm. great service. Uh, but the three most common types of cancers that most people at least recognize the names are basal cell carcinoma, number one cancer of any type in the United States. So it's more than breast, lung, colon, and prostate oh. cancer combined. Right. Um, but thankfully, doesn't get as much breast because it's completely curable in most cases. So so that's a non-melanoma skin cancer. The other common non-melanoma skin cancer is called a squamous cell carcinoma. And then of course, by far the most lethal, but actually much more rare is a melanoma, which many people have heard about. Yeah. Now, this is a good question. One of my listeners wants to know, so do skin cancers only develop on skin exposed to the sun? What do you think about that? Fact or fiction? What's your response? You know what I mean? So, so we know sunburns are a huge risk factor for skin cancer, but sadly, they don't only occur on areas exposed to sun. In fact, especially one of the big misconceptions, a second one is that people who are pigmented don't get skin cancers. And yeah. we know that pigmented and olive toned people do get skin cancers. In fact, one of my favorite examples for patients and med students, is that <laughs> Bob Marley died of an acrylic lentiginous melanoma. Oh on his toe, he died of metastatic melanoma. Oh man! And so interestingly, sometimes yeah. those types of cancers, especially the April ones, like for example, on the toe, we don't necessarily think that those are ultraviolet related. We think there may be a component of trauma, there may be a component of genetics, there may be a component of bad luck, but um, certainly it's not strictly sun exposed areas. Now that said, 80% of skin cancers occur on the head and neck. So the sun exposure link yeah. is certainly there. And, and like I tell my patients, if you have to prioritize a place that you're going to check, yeah. really be cognizant of the, you know, be really aware of the places that are exposed to ultraviolet, especially like driver's side. Things of course. Like that. But, but once a month or once a quarter, whatever's comfortable, I always tell people get, take a good head to toe and, you know, yeah. the length mirror because it's not always going to be where the sun shines. So <laughs> just, just be aware. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a random mom question. So, hey, when you're going out, um, how are you with the kids about sunscreen? You know what I mean? Because it doesn't take a lot of exposure to put you at risk. So are you a little, mom, it's just a little thing. Are you always kind of lathering them up? How are you being the dermatologist? I am, I am the biggest pain to me. <laughs> now 14 and 12 and their whole lives. Okay. They've been assaulted by their mom insisting <laughs> on a zinc-based mineral sunscreen. Wow. Because, you know, the, the statistics are just, which are really scary, is even one blistering sunburn in childhood 
doubles your lifetime risk of melanoma. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Lethal melanoma or lethal skin cancer, I should say. And five or more blistering sunburns as a child or in your childhood increases your risk of melanoma by 80%. So so knowing those numbers as a mom, it's hard not to be all over your kids and and say, look, at least if we put the zinc sunscreen on before yep. we get out the door and you're, you know, my, both my kids also, much to my chagrin, love sports and involve them being in the sun for hours. It's, my son is a baseball player. My daughter is a golfer. Oh, they're, they're so, bathing they're in the out. sun. Yeah, <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it's, it's hard because technically you should be reapplying every two to three hours. And that's, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a hard thing to get your kid to do that. But at least if you have that base layer and, they're aware about trying to wear a hat and they know that if they're turning red to seek shade, you know, all of those are are good things to instill in them. And, you know, a fun fact about my son, and he'll be mortified that I'm sure, (laughs) is that when, until he went for his very first pool party, he did not realize that boys just like girls, he just assumed all boys had to wear rash guard tops when they went to the pool just like little girls always wore like a bikini or bathing suit top. <laughs> right. But the first time when he was like two or three years old, he went to somebody's pool party and there were all these boys running around without rash guards. And he had never right. in his life been to the ocean or to a pool without a rash guard on. <laughs> and he was scandalized. Like he was like, mom, all the boys were topless. And was like, oh my gosh, I've definitely done my job as a dermatologist. because It's really odd that these kids aren't covered up and that boys, you know, aren't wearing rash guards. Yeah. That's so normal for him as a little kid. But, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really annoying. But I think knock on wood, I've kept them out of getting sunburned thus far in their lives. And, um, you know, I think even when they're not doing the right thing, they know they should, they know what the right thing is and they know what they should be doing. So at least that's a small victory. No, I'm sure you're a great mom. And now I'm going to ask about the basal and the squamous and the melanoma. And, you know, I just want to know for each one and basal, we'll start off with, you said very common. What are some descriptive signs and symptoms you could give to the general public to say, oh, man, this could be a basal cell? Yeah. And so basal cells are the ones people often mistake for a non-healing pimple. So the, the hallmarks of a basal cell cancer or carcinoma are a pearly pink papule. And so that's the mnemonic for a medical student, but it's like a little pink bump, okay. a little bit translucent that might even have like a little blood vessel running through it, but it just never goes away. It comes up one day in a sun exposed area. When you rub it hard with a towel, it might bleed, it might crust. That's kind of something to look for for a basal cell. Now, what about squamous? How do we, what, how do you describe in layman's terms squamous versus the basal you know so so basal cells i often tell people are, are a little bit more sort of pearly and yeah. um a little bit more fragile a squamous cell carcinoma is often like a red scaly or crusted plaque and one of the subtypes of the squamous cell carcinoma is something called a keratoacanthoma, which is a tongue twister but those are the types that come up really fast and explosively almost like a volcano and they often have this crusted keratin core. So something like that, you should be concerned. And, you know, I usually tell people, look, when in doubt, if you think it's benign versus cancerous, if it sticks around for more than a month, if it crusts or if it bleeds, and that's reasonable to show a doctor or show someone yeah. and have them take a look and tell you if it's something to be concerned about or not. So let's talk about the scary one. Yeah. Melanoma. You know what I mean? Um how, how do you know what's going to be melanoma? Maybe this is where you could kind of maybe interact. I have this ABCDE question coming up. Maybe you could yeah. combine those. So 
Give me some give me some pearls bad word choice about melanoma, you know? Yeah, no, so yeah. so the ABCDs are a really great way to remember what to look for in melanoma. Yeah. It's a mnemonic, and all of us med students and medical types love them. The A stands for asymmetry, meaning you couldn't draw a line through it and kind of have it look the same on either side. So you can't find an axis through which it's symmetric. The B stands for border. So a blurry, irregular, or indistinct border is something that might be a, a sign of concern for melanoma. The C is probably by far the one that flags the most melanomas because that stands for color. So we're usually talking about color that's really variable. So shades of different brown, like light, dark, medium brown, it's not uniform or the same shade all the way through. Or if it has other shades like black or red or blue along with something that's brown, then often that's something to watch for. The D stands for diameter, and mm -hmm. we use the size of a pencil eraser, which is six millimeters, as sort of the cutoff. If something's larger than that, it might be concerning. And then the E is for evolving or sometimes elevated. And so that's something that's been there for a while, but is starting to look more dark or jagged, jagged or irregular. Um, that's something that might be problematic. But remember that 50% of melanomas arise out of the blue. So you don't have to have a mole that's evolving. If something just comes up and it meets those criteria and you've never had it before, then that's certainly something that might need to be addressed. And I think this would be a good time to now jump to this question because when I knew I was going to be like interviewing you, I just kind of went to YouTube to see what you're up to. And I saw an interview you had with a med student about spotting a melanoma hockey game. Can you just tell me about that? Yeah, that was one of that was speaking of the doctors. We did that as a segment on the doctors, but that was a great story that got picked up in so many media outlets. And it was kind of a nice thing that something positive was being featured <laughs> um, as, as it stands with medicine. And, and she was a lovely young woman. Uh, her name was Nadia, and she's mm -hmm. actually going to be starting medical school at the time of that. Right. She had already been accepted to University of Washington, which was her undergrad alma mater, and she had gotten in there already for med school. And she was at a hockey game at an NHL game between the Seattle um, uh, Kraken, I guess is the name of the team, and oh. the Vancouver Canucks. <laughs> okay. And there was an assistant equipment manager, and his name is um, Ryan, and he goes by Red Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And she, he happened to just turn in the right way, and she saw a mole on the back of his neck. And it was through plexiglass in the chaos of this NHL. What? <laughs> and so she's trying to signal to him and she's yeah. so creative. She actually changed the font on her phone, made it really big, put it in bright color so he could see it. And then through the plexiglass was able to signal, get his attention and shows him her phone because it's through the glass. He's not going to hear her. Right. And, and puts up, you have, a, I'm worried you have a mole that might be concerning. Please show your doctor. Um, so it sticks with him. He goes home. He talks to his wife. He goes to the team doctor. Eventually, it ends up being diagnosed as a malignant melanoma. Wow. And so the doctor told him, like, this young, you know, good Samaritan, you have no idea who she is. And he didn't interact with her. You know, at that time, he looked a little yeah. slow. He didn't really know of how course. to respond. Um, he, you know, she was able to help him get this diagnosed. So then he made it his mission the next time the Vancouver Canucks were back in Seattle to seek her out. They put out word on social media and basically they tracked her down as the Good Samaritan. Aww. He thanked her personally. And then the team donated $10,000. She was given a scholarship towards medical school. That's to say, awesome. Thank you. Yeah, it was amazing. Oh. Such a like, lovely story. And she was so bright. She had worked. She volunteered in an oncology ward. Like She just had all this experience she was able to put it to good use. And it was it was just a lovely story, like especially when they met each other and just like what a sweet 
friendship and relationship, you know, sort of sprung from that one good act. And it was really just, you know, that aspect of if you see something, say something. Yeah. And, um, you know, she didn't want to panic him, but it was the right thing to do to, to just say, hey, you know, go get this checked and, you know, certainly likely saved his life. You know, I want to take out my crystal ball and just wonder, is this the moment where she's going to be a dermatologist like you down the line and look back on this? I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I think many, many dermatologists would love to mentor her. When we, yeah. when we talked to her on this segment, it sounded like she she wasn't necessarily going to go that path, but she hadn't decided yet. And so, you know, hopefully as she, like me, travels through her rotations, maybe she'll she'll stumble across yeah. something else that she really loves. But I think this is a good segue to this question, which is screening. You know, I think that, hey, screening for lung cancer, breast cancer, cervical cancer, but I mean... I really teach me something. What is the rule of thumb? I know there's different organizations. Is there screening for skin cancer that I should be aware about based on age or who? How do you approach your patients about screening? Yeah, so it's it's interesting because it's a little different than say like a colonoscopy where now we yeah. say, oh, at 45, you should start you know thinking about screening younger if you have a family history or, or mm-hmm. factors. Um, for skin cancer, I rely a lot on primary care physicians as well. So a lot of times that's a person's point of contact. They're going to flag if a person has an elevated mole count, or certainly most people are aware if they have a family history of some type of skin cancer. So that's usually a good good reason to come in and get a screen, just a head to toe in your birthday suit, have someone <laughs> <laughs> or dermatology trained, give yeah. people once over. Yep. And then most of the time we'll flag anything. Like if yep. you have an elevated mole count or a strong family history of atypical moles or melanoma, then I think once a year is a very reasonable annual screening check just to get a good head to toe. And then like sure. I mentioned, I'm a big advocate of people learning how to check themselves too, because of you course. know yourself, you know your body, you know your skin better than anyone. So if you see something that doesn't seem quite right or is evolving or certainly if it's symptomatic and bleeding, something like that, then, then you should make sure you're checked and evaluated for it. Um, but it's it's really varies because once you have a history of skin cancer, of course, then you, yeah. you know, buy yourself a lot of surveillance. And of if course. the type of skin cancer you have, then you may need a full body skin check every six months just to keep track and make sure that nothing new springs up. But I think it's it's always good to know your family history. That's a good yeah. thing to, to get screened. If you know, like I was rattling off that data about sunburns, if you know you've had a number of blistering sunburns as a child, or you're someone who works in the sun or gets a lot of ongoing sun exposure for your leisure or your work activities, then it certainly warrants having someone check you. And then they'll give you a good sense of how high risk you are and how often you might need to go in and, and be followed up. Uh, this is, I mean, now we're just flowing with this conversation because you said risk. My next question is about risk factors. And I know you mentioned you know, family history, we mentioned about sun and UV light. Are, is there other things that you could mention that, you know, the listeners should know about as far as risk factors? Yeah, and so so we talked about a, a history of sunburns. That's okay. probably a huge one, especially if you remember back to your childhood. And, and, you know, a lot of us grew up in a generation where sunscreen wasn't typically used, right? Like it was considered really healthy to go out there and put oil on your skin <laughs> or iodine or use a reflector. Everyone thought a tan was super healthy. So it, it is now these are really unwanted souvenirs <laughs> from all those practices. <laughs> so those are all risk factors for sure. Um, someone who has more than like, I, I always tell people, if you have more than 10 moles that are dark, you should probably think about having someone just check and make sure that you're good. 
And um, then certainly if you're someone who has like scaly sandpaper, red spots that are coming up from sun damage, then those are all risk factors as well for skin cancer. Oh, and that's going to lead to, well, hey, if you want to like maybe kind of decrease on those risk factors, prevent it from happening, um, should we kind of be like the way you are with the kids and making sure we lather them up pretty good? Or some simple tips for parents and kids or anyone listening just to kind of lower the risk, you know what I mean? And and so you already heard I'm a fanatic about sunscreen, but I am also a fanatic about ingredients, meaning I strongly prefer mineral or physical sunscreens. And that means when you look at the bottle, Mm -hmm. you should see on the active ingredients, it has zinc oxide or titanium dioxide. Okay. Those are mineral physical shields that sit on top of the skin and deflect ultraviolet light. And the reason that's helpful is because that's automatically going to be a broad spectrum UVA, UVB block. It's not just going to block UVB. A common misconception, SPF actually only refers to UVB block on the label. So if you buy a sunscreen and it says SPF 30, it's really only gauging how much it prevents that sunburn in the UVB range. And we do know that UVA, which is a little longer wavelength, actually penetrates the skin more deeply and, and is intimately associated with some of the other things like brown spots and wrinkles and likely has a contributory role for skin cancer as well. So I'm a big fan of mineral sunscreens. They stay on the skin uh, a little bit more effectively. They're safer in children. So know what you're buying, know what to use. Um, Reapply every two hours if you can, every one hour if you're in water. I'm a huge fan, so easy to do protective clothing. So I already mentioned hats, Yeah. rash guards if you're swimming. Like the more you can get fabric or protective shields, then you don't have to reapply and it's a lot less messy. So now a lot of the sun protective clothing is actually much more breathable. I think there used to be this misconception that was like really heavy and thick and miserable and and the older versions of it were. (laughs) Now many of the sun protective clothing lines look normal. They don't look odd. They look like fashionable, normal clothes. (laughs) Some of them are UPF, which means that they have a sun protection rating, just like the SPF in the products. UPF is a sun protective rating of your clothing. And then I think a really simple thing is if you have a choice as to when you're going to schedule a golf tea time or when you're going to go out and play tennis or take the dog for a walk or any like exposure where you know you're going to be in the sun for a while, try to do it before or after the peak UV index hour. So that's especially in a sunny place like LA where we both live, you know, exactly. PM, but um, you know, anywhere it would be more like at least 11 to one. So that midday sun's highest up in the sky. That's, that's a time where if you can avoid scheduling something that's going to put you on the sun for hours or for a long window, um, it's always better to do early morning or, or later in the evening. You know, no, I love all those pearls. And I want to make sure I squeeze in two more questions, a little bit broad, but just so people could know, hey, what is going to be the basic direction? Diagnosis, you know, mean, do I have it or not, doctor? And my question to you is, does, do you ever get to make your, hey, it's, it has the characteristics, you went through the ABCDEs, it looks like a pearl. Can you just make a clinical diagnosis or you're guaranteed you're going to have to take a little biopsy? So you certainly can make a clinical diagnosis for many of these skin cancers. And, you know, the longer you practice, the more likely you're accurate. <laughs> but the, the issue is most of the time, even if you think it's skin cancer, there's still a huge benefit to doing a biopsy. It's mm-hmm. going to tell you the subtype of cancer that it is, like some basal cell carcinomas, for example, are really superficial and they can be treated with a topical chemotherapy cream. 
versus other ones that are more infiltrative or sclerosing where Mohs surgery, um, which is what I'm boarded in as well, is, is wow. going to be a more appropriate um, standard of care. So there are benefits to the biopsy beyond just confirming is it cancer or not. It's going to tell you the clinical stage, how deep it is, what subtype it is. So, so generally, if you're in a situation where you're truly looking at what kind of or whether this is skin cancer or not, there's going to be a lot of extra information that you get from the biopsy that makes it well worth it. And, you know, i got to say, when it comes to treatment, I'll let you kind of answer what are going to be the treatments. I'm sure there's a lot of answers. But if my listeners don't know what Mohs surgery is, mm-hmm. it is just amazing. You should look it up. And, you know, Sonia, I forgot you do Mohs surgery. You are a talented person because I did rotate in dermatology. They do these flaps. I'm like, how did you do that? (laughs) How did the skin turn around and you just left the same day doing this? So (laughs) you're amazing. No, it's super fun. I mean, it's it's a great <laughs> procedure when indicated. I think it's, it's, yeah. it's a really excellent procedure for both the patient and it's fun to do as, as the physician. And for people who have never heard of it, Mose is actually named after Frederick Mose, who was a surgeon at the University of Wisconsin in the 1950s. For all you med students listening, he came up with the idea of this procedure as a medical student And now, you know, 70 plus years later, it's practiced widely. And the rationale and what it is that makes it unique is intraoperatively, you actually check the margins of the go. So over years, it's been refined where we do frozen section biopsies in real time. And with most surgery, the way the tissue is sectioned is rather than a traditional pathology section, which would be cut through vertically like a bread loaf. In this case, when you section the tissue, you're actually going to section through it from the bottom up, like almost like you're slicing horizontally through a pie. And that enables you to see the base as well as the periphery of the tumor to see if the margins are clear. So in real time, all the patients in your office under local anesthetic, you're checking to make sure you've got around it and under it. And then what Dr. Raj was referring to, the the really gratifying thing about most surgeries that the repairs are done in the office. Yes. We often will do local grafts or flaps or little rearrangements where because 80% of the skin cancers, like I was mentioning, are on the head and neck. Often you have to be very creative and skillful as to how you reconstruct those areas so that cosmetically as well as functionally, they look great and the patient goes away not looking totally disfigured or upset about having had the skin cancer in the first place. But on the opposite end of that, you're mentioning that sometimes if you're lucky, the patient's lucky, it could just be a, a topical chemo cream, you Absolutely. said? Yeah, I mean, it's just, we're so fortunate to be practicing medicine. Yeah, no kidding. We have a whole armamentarium and this, you know, some of the most interesting innovations in oncology and the drugs we're using even for skin cancer now are really innovative and new and they rely on harnessing the skin and the body's own immune system, for example, to attack skin cancers. So that's used everything from topical creams to pills. And so we have this whole armamentarium depending on how invasive and the subtype of skin cancer as to whether a cream using something called photodynamic therapy, which harnesses the power of light, good old just scraping it off or cutting it out. I mean, we have a lot of tools just that can be tailored depending on where it is, the person's lifestyle and how invasive the cancer is. So we, it's a really great time to be practicing because we have more options than ever before. I mean, I'm almost sad there's like time limits for these things because I love chatting with you. I got to tell you, I'm only down to a couple of questions left. I'm sad. Uh, So I want to talk about you and, and your practice and everything. So, you know, dermatology is such a broad word. There's so many things you could do. And I think that you mentioned one side is surgery and the other side is teaching and all these things. 
what, what do you, what is your jam right now? What do you really specialize in most of the time? Well, so I think everybody's practice evolves with time, right? So I'm sure just like you might have started out a little bit more generally, I would assume in, in pulmonary and critical care, everybody mm-hmm. sort of gravitates towards what they enjoy and, and mm-hmm. what they find that they tend to be um, more skillful at. <laughs> so so for me, over years, I really evolved more towards a procedural bent. And like wow. I mentioned, um, I took the boards not only in dermatology, but in the newly offered micrographic dermatologic surgery I do a lot of cosmetic procedures. The fellowship yep. I did, uh, thankfully, was very broad. So we did everything from lasers to injectables to cosmetic surgery. And so um, I kind of pride myself that my practice is, is really everything under the umbrella of dermatology, whether it's medical, surgical, or cosmetic, we certainly offer. And I think I personally have become much more of a subspecialist in procedural dermatology over years. That's awesome. So goals for the future, I got to know, you know what I mean? Um, so I kind of threw this in there to be to tease you a little bit. Is your goals going to be on the bench research, being the best clinician that you are right now? Or is it having your own TV show and you're just not telling anyone? <laughs> so I guess if I had to put it all in into perspective, I, I just like, and, and this is going to sound very cliched, but I think a lot of people go into medicine like you really just enjoy helping people and educating them. Of course. So, so for right now, I think it's a good balance being both a clinician and trying as best I can, especially through media to spread the word. So super grateful to do this podcast with you. <laughs> And I, I appreciate all the efforts you make to raise awareness. I love all the efforts you do on TV and you're posting and you're, you're teaching so many people. And, and that's joyful in medicine. It's really a privilege to, to be able to share this information that we were, we were really fortunate and blessed to, to be able to garner. It's nice to disseminate it, especially seeing now at the, you know, after two plus years of this pandemic Yeah, and, and on a different had podcast i would love to know what your experience was like being a pulmonary critical care specialist in the hospital you know you're really on the front lines um i i'd be fascinated to hear your experience and i think on a as a separate specialty just seeing how much misinformation really harmed people oh yeah it it to me really made it much more brought home much more how important it is that the people who actually have studied medicine and (laughs) have that expertise are the ones out there trying to educate people so so to your question you know going forward i don't know if i'll have my own show i just am happy to be here and try to spread good information reliable information that's been vetted by experts um and help as many people as possible and so so that's that's where i'm at for now you know, Sonia, I, I know why they asked you to be the host. You're just an awesome person. You have good answers. And honestly, like even you said, some answers are cliche. I'm looking at you because I can see you and you just have this huge heart. You just do. I can tell. You know what I mean? Oh, kind. No, you do as well. And I, I appreciate all you do. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. So, you know, everyone's going to want to. I hear that knock over there. Yeah, but I know. Don't worry. Hey, I uh, last thing. Everyone's going to want to know how they can find you or anything. And I'll put it in the show notes, but how can people find you or do you have a website or whatever you have? Uh, we do. I, I think our website is currently down for maintenance yeah. <laughs> as, as these things go, but I don't know in terms of when this airs, but you can always find me online. If you just Google Sonia Batra MD or Batra Skincare or Batra Dermatology, um, certainly I'll be able, you'll get all my contact info. Like, like you said at the beginning, I practice in Santa Monica, California. 
So happy to be a resource or help anyone and anybody who listened to this. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your attention and your time. Well, let me end it right there and just say, I hope everyone enjoyed this episode of Dr. Raj podcast. It is skin cancer awareness month. We had the queen of skin cancer awareness and advocate for patients. Dr. Sonia Bacha, thanks again for being here today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you so much for all the good work you're doing as well. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.